This is the CQ University Australia podcast, where we talk to some of the university's interesting characters. Today we're talking to CQ University Associate Professor and Head of Course in Forensic Psychology, Stephen Mostyn. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, thank you very much. First of all, tell me a little bit about yourself, I guess your personal background. I'm from England originally, a little town outside of uh, London called Waltham Abbey, a very small place. Um, Grew up there and went to university in England, Um, went to Aston University, then Manchester University, then Kent University. Um, I worked at Kent University for several years, working with the Metropolitan Police, the Royal Commission and uh, the Home Office, and then came to Australia in 1992. What, what was it that you were doing at each of those universities and then what drew you to Australia? I've always been in psychology um, and somewhere along the way, even though we didn't call it forensic psychology then, I've always been interested in forensic psychology. Um, there's always something about uh, criminal behaviour and the way in which investigations were conducted which I found interesting. So pretty much from my undergraduate studies uh, I turned everything into uh, a forensic project. So it's always been about how do you interview people, how do you get accurate information out of them. That's been the, the one consistent theme in all of this work. Um, but that's the normal way it goes. You, you travel around, you go to lots of different universities, you study at different places and uh, you, you basically work it out along the way what it is that you're really interested in. So were they undergraduate degrees that you were doing at each of the unis? Or? First of all, an undergraduate degree in psychology, then I did a master's in child psychology, um, which I turned into something about children as eyewitnesses, um, and then I did a PhD again on children as eyewitnesses. Um, and so I really just spent a lot of time studying um, undergraduate then at postgraduate levels. Right, so what did bring you to Australia? Um, A job at uh, Deakin University. Um, I went out to Geelong uh, in 1992, got a very nice place to live there right next to Bells Beach and uh, it was a very very nice place to live. Sounds terrible Stephen. It was horrible, (laughs) the the weekends were really just so dull. (laughs) Did you learn to surf? Uh, yes, very badly. <laughs> oh well, at least you tried. <laughs> I tried. What? Um, tell me what happened from there. So you've obviously been in Australia for a, a, a significant amount of time now. Yes. Um, and now you're at CQ Uni. Tell me a little bit about sort of that. What happened in the middle? Mm. Um, yeah, well, I still haven't lost the accent, I'm afraid, <laughs> as people keep pointing out. Um, I went to the University of New South Wales after that for a while and then um, I had to go back to England uh, where I worked at the London Business School for a year. Um, I I became very interested in um, new technologies and how they were impacting on people. Um, We didn't actually call it the internet then, it was the information superhighway and it was a very exciting thing and we all thought it sounded terribly cool and, and useful and we thought it would had have a great potential. Um, so did some work, very early work on, on how this would actually impact on education and, and people's lives. Um, then for various family reasons ended up in uh, South America in the country Uruguay for five years um, where I spent some time um, working with the police there um, and other groups and then basically came back to Australia in 2001 and uh, worked in market research for a few years. I sold my soul to the, um, the corporate devil. Um, yes, n- not proud of it. <laughs> it was uh, an interesting experience, but um, 
I, I actually counted the number of times I used my brain while I was there. <laughs> I got to three and I thought, okay, that's, that's it. Um, I need to get out of this. And uh, forensic work was calling me back. I, I just missed it too much. And so I went to James Cook University um, and headed up the forensic psychology program there, uh, which was very, very good. And then the university cuts come along and as such things do, the program was closed. Um, I then went to the University of Canberra uh, was there for a little while and then finally and happily moved here to CQ University. And you're at CQ Uni in Townsville. Yes. Um, you've obviously been in Townsville before having been at James Cook, is that right? Yes, I've been in Townsville now for 11 years. Yeah, right, okay. How are you finding the city? I like Townsville. Um, I like the fact that you can drive from one edge uh, to the other and it takes 20 minutes and um, even on a busy day it takes 20 minutes. Um, it's it's a nice place to get around. You can cycle everywhere. I, I like going out on my bike, and it's just really nice um, to get around. Um, it's, it's just really good place to live. Psychology. Um, what is it about psychology that made you that that really you know sparked your interest from the very beginning? Um, I got interested in psychology after reading um, some articles at school, and I thought that sounds like fun. Um, I think it was actually some articles about space psychology, and I thought maybe this is how I get to be an astronaut. Um, and then, so I started reading um, psychology magazines and then books, and I, I just got really keen on the whole idea. And then when I told the school that I wanted to go to university to do psychology, they had to ask how to spell it first of all because I think I was the first person who'd ever actually said that. Um, back in the day, it wasn't the sort of thing that um, everyone did. You went to study English or geography and psychology, what's that? Um, but I went and, and I really loved it. I, I absolutely loved studying and I really enjoyed reading. I, I read everything that came my way and the nicest thing I can say about it is it never really felt like work. I just liked what I was doing. And then as I became more specialised in doing forensic work, um, I see it as having the best job in the world. I, I do what I like um, and it's just fun. I can't imagine not doing it. How did the astronaut part go for you? Um, I discovered um, all the various tests that I would have to go through before they would send me off into space <laughs> and I chickened out like a complete and utter coward. Now... You, you talk about forensic psychology, um, and that's something that you're very much doing now at CQU. Tell me a little bit about that. Okay, well, I got interested in it um, really by accident as I was studying. Each um, summer I would work um, on children's um, play schemes, working um, for local councils, spending weeks just organising play and games for children, and we talked a lot to, ch to children while they were on these schemes. And... Issues of children's memory, whether they could remember things and how you actually talk to children, uh, became really central to how we actually worked. One of the things was lots of parents would try sending their children along before they could actually um, officially enrol. So we would take them from the age of seven. So we had lots of five and six year olds turning up and saying, I am seven. And so working out how do you actually um, question a child and get the truth out of them when they've been uh, programmed by mum and dad to pretend a particular type of answer became really quite interesting. Mm. Um, and so I got interested in the whole idea of how do you actually talk to children. And then my university studies really re reinforced that. I was lucky to work with some very good developmental psychologists and 
they just really inspired me with, with the sort of work that they were doing. It made me realise people don't understand what's going on inside children's heads and the more confident they are, the, the worse the interview seems to be. Um, the big problem children have in interviews isn't um, their own capacities, it's the interviewer. And so with that in mind, um, I began studying that issue and, and really became very interested in how do you question children and avoid some of the problems that um, people have when talking to children. After that work, which went down pretty well, um, helped change the way in which um, children are interviewed. Um, I was very pleased with that. Um, I was contacted by um, the Metropolitan Police and asked if um, I would work on a brand new area um, of questioning suspects. Um, no one had ever done that before um, and it was just too good an opportunity to, to miss up. Uh, plus I was also just finishing my PhD and I needed a job. Um, but the timing was good. It helps. <laughs> it helps indeed. Um, and it was just absolutely the most exciting thing I, I'd ever done. Um, spent a year working with the police in London, uh, spent a lot of time inside police stations, watched interviews, collected information on, on hundreds and hundreds of cases and saw all sorts of issues that were going on in interviews, what was going wrong, what was going right. There was a longer list of what was going wrong and basically pointed out to them, look, you're not doing a terribly good job here and was able to show very clearly why they were doing things wrong. And they took that surprisingly well um, and they ripped up all their training manuals, burnt the lot and um, decided to rebuild all police interview training across the country. And that was nice. That was um, real impact. Research mm. sometimes does actually matter. It uh, sure so does. It, it, was, it was a lovely reaction. And then seeing laws changed as the basis of research findings, um, it was very, very good to actually see people taking the work very, very seriously. And, and I really enjoyed what I was doing, so it just kept going, just kept getting better and better. What's the most important question to ask? Um, usually, if you're interviewing a suspect, um, simply talking to people and, and not asking is, is certain questions is usually the key. Um, if you start with, okay, so did you do it? Sometimes you get lucky, um, <laughs> but more often than not, you don't. Um, that usually indicates that you've got absolutely no idea what you're talking about, and um, it's not going to go very far. Occasionally, you, you do have the opportunities to actually ask those sorts of things when you know how a particular person is going to behave, but more often than not, it takes a lot of planning and preparation. You've got to think through, what am I going to ask? What do I actually know? Have I understood this evidence correctly? Um, and you don't want to end up accusing a person who's actually innocent of having committed a crime. So you've got to be very careful with how you structure the information and really asking people, look, tell me what you know about this incident uh, without prejudging them is usually the safest and easiest way to go. Now, um, I understand that now you also have something to do with sport and like psychology within sporting? Yes. Um, a few years ago, I, I read an interview with, uh, I think it was Grant Hackett, was talking about how the cheats always get away with um, doping. You know, why is it we can't catch these people? And I thought, well, come on, doping is sport. It can't be that difficult. I mean, it's not exactly the most serious crime in the world. Uh, and I became interested in how do they actually go about investigating it? And I just thought, there's something seriously wrong here. They're, they're not doing a very good job. They're using one simple technology um, 
anti-doping testing. So basically they analyze um, urine and, and test whether there are any drugs in it. And if they get lucky once in a while, they think they've done a terribly good job. Um, that would be like the police only investigating cases where they've got a, some fingerprints on file. That's actually not a great analogy, but it's, it's, it's along the right lines. Um, and I became very interested in the idea of what would happen if you actually were to take this seriously and actually investigate it as a serious offence um, with people who actually know what they're doing conducting interviews. And the more I got into it, the more it became apparent that the same problems in uh, police interviews were actually beginning to appear in um, anti-doping cases. And so all of this sparked a real interest in how do you detect people who have been doping? How do you detect people who've been doing any of the things they're not supposed to be doing um, in sport? And ultimately the answer is talking to people seems to be the most reliable way of doing anything. The biology is, is biological testing is very clever and, and very useful in certain circumstances, but only a minority of circumstances. Most cases, there is no physical evidence. Many of the most famous cheats were tested many, many times. And yet, when they're actually questioned, they don't know what to say. And in some cases, it becomes pretty obvious that the person is actually doping just by talking to them. And quite often, they will actually tell you that they are actually doping because they don't actually realize sometimes that they're giving themselves away. Wow, that's really interesting. Do you, do you think that the application of this talking to athletes is happening now? Um, gradually. Um, the whole process of investigating um, doping is being shifted more over towards um, a police investigative framework. Um, simply because uh, all the anti-doping for all the millions of dollars that are spent on the testing catches only a handful of people a year. Um, the countries that have adopted a more police-oriented framework, like Italy, um, tend to catch hundreds of people, whereas here we might catch you know, a couple of dozen a year if we're lucky, and usually they're low-level offenders and people who probably weren't too bright about what they were actually doing, or it was simply an accident. Yeah, right. Very interesting. So do you think that um, we've got a, a way to go still in where we can head? Absolutely. Um, it's still not an issue that people are taking very seriously. And by people here, I mean um, the sporting organisations. Um, they have a real problem. If they investigate carefully, they have a doping problem. They detect someone and, and it looks bad. Um, if they do nothing, wow, it's all quiet. The news is, is very quiet today and everyone's happy with that. So th they're in a bind. If they investigate and find something, everyone thinks they're, they're a terrible group. So their incentives are there to actually do absolutely nothing. Makes sense. Yes, sadly. Mm. Now, um, in terms of academia, Stephen, tell me a little bit. You've obviously been within the university sector for a very long time. Um, what is it about higher education that you enjoy that keeps you here? Because obviously filtering your knowledge onto up and up and coming is something that you must enjoy. I, I love teaching forensic. Um, I, I really enjoy finding students who, who get get it. Um, in every class there, there's a small group who, who truly are on the right wavelength. Their thinking, um, their, their skepticism is, is really top-notch and it, it's great to work with students like that. You see something really exciting happening as they start working things out and um, Basically, I try and corrupt them into carrying on and doing forensic work. Um, that, that's the ultimate mission. But every time somebody actually does say, yes, I want to carry on in this 
way. I want to carry on doing forensic psychology. Um, my heart does a little flutter and, and I'm so happy. Um, that, that's fantastic. Um, that, that's really good. For the majority of people, it's just something to be interested in and they're in for one term. That's fine. I love them too. Um, <laughs> but it, it's the ones who are going to carry on that, that are really um, very interesting. Um, they're not necessarily the, the top of the class or anything, but they're, they're just, they've got it. They've got the right way of thinking and, and approaching the world. Is there much opportunity for the forensic, you know, forensics graduates um, within both in Australia and worldwide? Definitely. Um, I've placed um, students with the Queensland Police, um, corrections, there's all sorts of groups who will be hiring psychologists. Um, didn't used to be that way, but everything's changed quite dramatically. Um, psychology and um, police services have had a very unhappy relationship over the last hundred years. Um, basically, they've hated each other for quite a bit of it. But recently, things have started changing, and you'll find a lot of senior police officers have got degrees in psychology, sometimes PhDs in psychology, and they really appreciate how things are done within a very scientific framework. and. They like what we're doing. They, they see the point of it and they can apply what's being done, particularly things like interviewing techniques. It's changed the way in which investigations are conducted. And that's all come straight out of um, science, psychological science. So um, we've definitely had a real impact over the last, let's say, 20 years. And it's been great to watch that happen, um, going from no one believing a word you said and barely wanting to talk to you through to actually having people contact you and ask you uh, for advice um, has been a very dramatic change and it's happened within a very short space of time. Where to next? Um, here at CQU um, we are hoping to get a graduate certificate of applied forensic psychology off the ground for next year and uh, even the mere rumour of its existence is, is attracting interest. Um, forensic psychology is a very popular specialisation around the world, but here in Australia, for, for various historical reasons, we've, we've drifted down a clinical psychology path and pretty much everything else has drifted away, including forensic psychology. That's a real shame because there is a clear demand for, for graduates, um, people with skills in forensic psychology, police services in particular, uh, want to pick up people um, who understand um, forensic psychology. And so, what we'll do here is we will put out our program, we will try and recruit students to this, and um, we will train people how to interview, how to understand what's going on in investigations using psychology. And it's something we're very excited about here, but we're also doing um, lots of our own research. We're interested in all sorts of things to do with how do you talk to people. And the aim here is to be the Centre for Forensic Psychology here in Australia. Not aiming low here at all. That's the way, and it does yes. sound very exciting. And what about personally? Personally? What's next? <laughs> um, it's always more of the same. Uh, carry on doing um, what I do, um, because that's just, that's it. I'm, I'm in a rut, I suppose, if you put it like that. Um, I, I like studying um, anything to do with um, police investigative processes. I love interviewing of suspects. Um, I can never get enough of that. And so more and more research. Um, it, it's such an open um, topic. There's so many um, possibilities for what could be done. Great scope for creativity. I, I, 
work with students and, and every year we think up something new and I think, wow, that's that's really exciting. Every year I see something and I think, that's just really good. Um, the last thing I saw was I read a newspaper article uh, from Victoria about dogs being used in interviews um, with sexual assault victims and the dogs are there to support the people who are giving testimony. Now, I did my PhD on social support. I spent years studying social support and I didn't have that idea. wouldn't have occurred to me. Um, and I just thought, that's absolutely brilliant. It's, it's such a great idea. I have to study that. <laughs> so, well, I did think for a second that you were going to say the interviewing techniques of dogs or something. I thought, how are you going to get there? <laughs> dog witness memory. If it could be done, I would be doing it. I like dogs. Um, you can have lots of fun with studying dogs. Um, and that would oh, be a perfect combination. But the idea of, of studying how you can use support animals. Okay, there's a serious thing here. Um, it's, it's just exciting. It's a brand new way of looking at interviews. What if um, we actually let, let's say, children be interviewed on stressful topics, things that they're going to be very upset by in the company of a nice, big, friendly Labrador? Um, it could be very, very exciting. It could be a detriment. Um, we have to work out how do we do these things? What's going to be the problems? Um, are there certain circumstances when we shouldn't do this? Um, but let's work out where we can do this. And it's just an exciting new avenue. Mm -hmm. And so when things like that pop up, um, as they do as you go along, um, it just completely re-energizes. Everything is, is, is sparked by something like that. A story of, or a case um, sets off a new area of research interest. Speaking of research, um, are you currently working on a topic? Yes, I've just been finishing off um, a big project for the International Olympic Committee on um, athletes uh, and whether or not you can tell by their, their testimony whether or not they're, they're lying. And basically you can. Uh, the research um, identified groups of people who were and weren't uh, lying and uh, objectively were able to show that some of the people talked in a very different way. They used all sorts of words and expressions um, that gave away the fact that they were actually guilty. And that was a, just a use of applied forensic psychology into this context of doping. Uh, so th that's been the, the focus for the last couple of years, and there's a little bit more to go on that before we finish it off. But the idea is to develop um, what I affectionately call the forensic anti-doping interview. Um, it's a procedure for actually questioning people and getting a, an honest statement from them but something that if you're an innocent athlete would help exonerate you, but if you are indeed doping, um, you will trip yourself up and you will give yourself away because you don't know what you're supposed to be saying. So it, is this similar to like a lie detector testing? Ooh. Um, similar in concept, but this one hopefully works. <laughs> lie detectors are terrible, basically. Um, the machinery of lie detection, even though everyone loves the idea of let's let's get a machine in and let's let's spend millions and millions of dollars on, on widgets and devices and put people in brain scanner units and so forth, it's very exciting and, and might turn out to be really good one day, but it hasn't so far. Um, it's consistently struck out, whereas um, techniques based around asking people questions, as dull as that sounds, um, tend to be very, very effective and they're being used in all sorts of um, discipline areas and, and 
real world areas, like insurance claims, um, doctors talking to people about illnesses, um, people suspecting that um, symptoms are being faked for various purposes. Um, there's all sorts of interviewing protocols being developed um, around the world in all sorts of situations, and that's where most of my work fits in, talking to people. Let's just ask them some questions. Most people who are trying to lie can't keep their stories straight, and you can always work out um, where the flaws are in their stories. Yeah, a lot of um, work in this field is based on opinion, and that's one of the things that um, I've been trying to eradicate over the years. Um, it's very easy to have a theory about how you should conduct interviews, and it's very easy to get some evidence for that. Um, if you have a particular idea that a person sitting opposite you, if they touch their nose in a particular way, that, oh, that's definitely it, that means they're guilty. And they do touch their nose, and oh, well, that's definitely it. And they do indeed turn out to be guilty. You feel really, really excited, and you feel as if everything proves that what you've done is, is very, very truthful and good, except you don't remember the misses. Um, every time that someone was touching their nose and it turned out they were innocent, you forget those. Um, it's a very self-selecting use of evidence. And so people convince themselves that their own little theories about how to detect lies are correct. And they really do kid themselves that what they're actually doing is, is correct. What's changed over the last few years, and, and Australia was the pioneer in this, is that um, interviews with suspects and increasingly with witnesses are now recorded. And so the objective record of what people actually say matters. It's not so much whether the person touched their nose. No one cares about that. No one's going to be impressed with that, really. As much as the interviewers might think it means something, you can't use that as evidence in court. Look, Your Honour, he touched his nose. I definitely know that means I'm sounding stupid, aren't I now? So um, it, it just doesn't work. Um, it's not that useful. Um, but it makes people feel good, which indeed is another problem, um, overconfidence. Um, another expression here is um, bad interviewers are, are, are full of confidence, but not competence. Like this podcast? Don't forget to rate, review and share with your friends.